Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deck Arts Podcast. Today, I am here with Sylvia Ferguson, and we will be talking about the American industrial designer Henry Dreyfus, Dreyfus and consumerism in post-war America. Sylvia wrote a catalog entry for the Cooper Hewitt on a Dreyfus drawing, Lavatory Insulation, Stink for Crane Company, done in 1949. Richard Teller Crane started Crane Company in 1855, and Dreyfus began working with the company in 1935 and continued until the mid-1950s. The drawing was done by draftsman Julian Everett, drawn on laid slate gray paper with graphite pencil, black charcoal, and white chalk in landscape view. Uh, Sylvia, what drew you to this to-, to this object? Well, like, nothing really drew me to it. I kind of got it because I didn't want it. Like, everybody <laughs> had to pick their objects. And it was, like, just this little array of, like, drawings and prints and stuff that were left over. And I was just like... I don't know what to pick. And it was kind of like a really silly reason why I picked the Henry Dreyfus sink. Like, my dad was a plumber. And I was like, okay, of all these things that are left, like, what stands out to me? What can I possibly talk about? And I was like, okay, my dad's a plumber. I have a little bit of knowledge about sinks and, like, plumbing. So I was like, maybe I can do this Dreyfus sink. And that was the reason why I chose it. And trust me, I hated that (laughs) sink when I first got it. Do you like the sink now? Yes and no. And I say yes for I me. Mean, I did a lot of research and I found so much more stuff. And I'm like, okay, this sink is really an example of a big part of design history and from the 1940s and 1950s. No, because I had a hard time researching. Like, I spent hours and hours doing, like, research. I went into books. I was going to companies who do, like, remodeling sinks and, like, fix stuff, like, faucet valves and all these other type of plumbing parts and I was just like I can't find anything because you know the company is now part of American Standard. Dreyfus died in the 1970s really horrifically and it's just like I have really nothing to talk about with this crane sink like if you look at any books of his any books on Dreyfus's work crane is like this minuscule paragraph compared to everything else so it's like God, how I'm going to write something interesting about this sink. Well, that's crazy because um, I was reading, actually, Sylvia's paper, and then I'll post a link, actually, so everyone can go see the catalog entry that she did, and then it actually became, like, an object of the day. So it's, like, a condensed version of her catalog entry, but I'll post a link so everyone can go see the picture and see, like, more objects similar to it, but... um, in your paper, it was interesting because it sounded like he worked really hard on all the drawings and tried to streamline that look for the company and make it really a modern bathroom and livable space, which I thought was really cool. It really was cool. Well, he got started with the company in the 1920s, so, you know, we got the jazz age, Art Deco stuff. So that is a really a big contrast to this thing, which is more streamlined. You know, there's a lot of historic style. There's a lot of non-porous and very cleanable surfaces. Like, it was just really, I don't want to say over-ornamented, but just really excessive and gaudy, which is really bad. Because if you know me, I kind of do not appreciate, well, not appreciate, I appreciate the jazz age. I really don't care for it stylistically. So a lot of those things in, like, just kitchen design in general was just, in my opinion, really gaudy and 
1949 sink is really just an example of like this new modernized kitchen. You kind of got a precursor to scientific management of the kitchen, just the sleekness and smooth lines, the like the oval shape of it, and just a lot of still just really new innovative materials and techniques that hadn't been seen in the previous decades. Yeah, you also mentioned um, ergonomics. I don't know if you want to expand on that. That's sort of a weird word if you aren't familiar with that. I only know it from, like, the office chairs because they're always talking about how you should sit. And I only know, like, a little basics about it. Like, basically, ergonomics is, like, human factor, like, the dynamics of that. Basically, well, let me face it this way. Dreyfus is, like, the king of ergonomics. So if you go with his past history and other companies... He is very concerned about his relationship with the manufacturer, the company. Like, he's really hands-on. He wants to know how people will interact with his designs, how it's going to fit within the space. So with ergonomics, you kind of think about it in a way. He mentioned it in his book, um, Designing for People, which you know, like the Joe and Josephine kind of, like the prototype, like the model of, like, the man and the female, like, how they interact with, like, daily objects. So, like, ergonomics, like, we have our... Everybody should have, like, an iPhone or, like, a smartphone. For Dreyfus, he'll think about, like, the smoothness of it. How is this person going to carry this in his hand? Is it going to be inconvenienced if it has, like, sharp lines? How is the screen going to look? Is it going to get a glare? Is it going to magnify what's being seen? Like, it's all these dynamics that compose of how a human interacts with daily objects. And that's basically what ergonomics is, in a way, that makes sense. Yeah, and he's sort of, is he the first one, then, to sort of use that in the way that he was using it? I mean... I don't think he was the first, but I think he's the one that became most known for it because people in documents are real. Like, they had nothing but positive things to say about Dreyfus. They're like, he, regardless of, like, money involved and all these other outside factors with, like, materials and company work, like, he thinks of the buyer, the buyer, the buyer, like... (laughs) So everything's very user-friendly. Very user-friendly. And so you mentioned um, when we were talking about the ergonomics like two seconds ago, Joe and Josephine. Do you want to explain to everyone what what those names mean? Because if you're not familiar with design history or, I guess, 20th century design, you're not going to know who they are. Well, it's in his book. It's like an excerpt in Designing for People. And it's like these... Well, the guy's Joe and there's this female who's Josephine. It's in my... Well... It's a little sexist, in my opinion. I didn't want to say that. But, you know, the time frame that the book is is kind of expected. But basically how men and women interact with different objects in different environments. Like, if you're sitting in a chair, there's a certain way a guy should be sitting with his back straight, arms pulled. Like, this air about him that just fits with the stereotypical man perspective. Same thing with the female, how she was sitting in the chair, how she was standing in the kitchen and interact with all these different objects, different dynamics of like her body, how her head's positioned, how her body will conform to certain objects, that kind of thing. Oh, that's cool. It's cool. It's like, you think about the period, it's like, of course, the woman's in the kitchen, the guy's in his little office, and he's standing with all these chairs, and he just like air about them, but it's like, there's so much more. And, I mean, I'm not kind of gl- glancing over it, but if you pick up his book and go to that chapter, it's really in-depth about all these daily objects that you never really think about and how to interact with them. Yeah. And so, briefly, um, Sylvia mentions this in her catalog entry. 
Um, but he also designed the Honeywell thermostat, um, the New York Central 20th Century Limited Train, um, John Deere tractors, and the Hoover vacuum. Yes. Probably the only things that people can attribute to Jarvis, although there's so much more, which kind of frustrates me because not only doing the crane stuff, there's just so much more to his design. He also did the Big big Band Alarm Clock. Um, He also did the locomotive for the 20th Century Limited. He also did the... um, 1939, he had uh, the New York World's Fair. He did the democracy. 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 Like, Democrats plus <laughs> city. <laughs> it's a complicated word. But yeah, he did that. So you kind of see these little allusions to kind of like these similar design aesthetics with like steel and streamlining. Actually, with the New York 20th Century Limited Train, if you look at the front of it, it's actually pretty similar to the top of the sink faucet in my catalog entry. So he carried over a lot of these similar aesthetics from a lot of his designs over into each one that he did. And I kind of hate, which I really hate the John Deere tractor. Why? It's just, I feel like it's overrated in a way. And stylistically, for me, compared to a lot of his other designs, it's not the most dynamic. And I feel like... The design of that tractor is pretty similar to a lot of other industrial designers of their period. And it was kind of just like, I feel like a bandwagon effect in a way because of the time period when it was first came out and the colors. And it's just, I find it really horrific. (laughs) (laughs) Did he pick the green color? I want to say yes, but at the same time, again, he's very, you know, that relationship with the company. They probably said, like, this is this green color and... Yeah. To me, it looks like puke green. <laughs> so it's like he wants that interpersonal relationship. So regardless of his feeling, if it makes the client happy, I feel like he's going to say, this is the design we're going to go with. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it is a very bright green. I hate that green color. <laughs> um, and then you go on to talk about consumerism as a whole, sort of like the culture of post-war America. Um, and you mentioned the decisive decade, which is remembered as a period of economic growth um, and then sort of the shifting classes and affordability of goods. Um, so how did you sort of link those together? Did it just happen naturally? Like, how did you decide? It was like a long process because, again, I was trying to – it was very hard finding the angle to talk about this thing because, A, I couldn't find really any research about it. So then I thought about the time period it was created. So um, it was 1949. So I'm thinking it's very, it's like a transitionary period in design history and just history in general. So we have our entry into World War II, 1941, I believe, and then the war ends in 1945. So we know that period, design and just stuff going on in homes and consumers is kind of at like a halt because everything is going to the war effort. Uh, the men are across the seas, women work in factories. There's not really any emphasis on, like, the home and buying a lot of products because, A, the money needs to go to the war effort. So nobody's really buying anything. There's really no emphasis on decorating. Stuff is being melted down. So there really isn't just anything going on. And after the war, it's actually, like, a really big period of economic growth. Obviously, we went to war. All these soldiers are coming back. There's 
GI like rights coming out for housing. It's just like a surplus of money and material left over from the war. So this is like 1949. So this is in the middle of like this period of economic growth, and it's kind of slowly transitioning into like the 1950s, which is like baby boom, just a big period and explosion of design. So when I call it like the decisive decade, because it was kind of like in a period of like uneasiness, like we have all these soldiers back. We need to find housing for them. There's a surplus of money. It's kind of like we're trying to settle back into, like, normal life. You know, 1939, we had the New York World's Fair, like I mentioned earlier. And it's, like, the world of tomorrow. There's um, cars. There's highways. It gave this image of, like, this wonderful future. And going to the war is kind of, like, a halt. And everybody's sad. No one's doing anything. And it was kind of, like, trying to get back to this return of, like, nostalgia. So as we're transitioning into like the 1950s, we have all this money. It's like, let's try to restore what's lost. So there's money. What you do with money? You go and buy things. And really with the transition to like this new idea of the kitchen and the home and the housewife and all these other factors, it's kind of like, this is the perfect period to design and change up everything, really. Yeah, and there's a total shift to the nuclear family of like the mom, the dad, the brother, the sister. Oh, nuclear family. Yeah, because a lot of the ads I would want to, because I found a couple of crime ads. They're not drivers, but they kind of give like an example. And you know, most of the cliche 1950s, the pastel housewife, she's over the kitchen with her little glass of like wine, and she's just cooking her meal. The family's in the background. You have your little dog, and the husband's off somewhere in like the office or anything. And yeah, just really just cliche idea of the nuclear family but it's really what you call like the american dream of like the 1950s so that's kind of like the context i kind of wanted the place to sink in because just i was really trying my hardest to figure out like a way to talk about a broader issue in design history but also include my sink as well yeah i mean it's so interesting to think about it too um because the house becomes more modern so the bathroom is in the house and it becomes so his drawings do like look like high speed rail lines like which is cool and it's really weird because after all like my research I still don't know if this is like a bathroom sink or a kitchen sink but like there's no like definitive proof but you have to think about and just comparing it to other examples of things during the period a circular sink like that would probably be in the bathroom opposed to being in the kitchen. I also think the lavatory means bathroom. That's what I assumed as well. But yeah, he has a couple of other designs with the same title as lavatory. But they're more right, right that linear. And there's probable causes that those are in the kitchen. Oh, interesting. I know. It was hard. I was like, because he has so many designs of different shapes of sinks and different parts, which really just shows like, he thought of everything, from even for stuff that's in perfect view to, like, the plumbing that's hit. Like, how the person going to interact with this and how it's going to, like, fit within the kitchen. So, did the Cooper Hewitt have more of the Crane Company drawings? They have several, in effect. I believe up to the point when I got this drawing, that was the only one on view. And they have several more in collections, but I don't think they hold up to, like, this thing. This one stands out, in my opinion. It's the best. Of. It's the best of the best. Even though I still kind of don't like it, it's still some of the best of the best. So when you were doing your research, was there anything in particular that 
surprised you or you weren't expecting to find that you discovered in your research? Um, I guess what I didn't expect to find, and it took, I found it in like a really, like a snippet. And I believe it was in Russell Flincham's The Man in the Brown Suit. So it was like right after the war, because he started, he came involved with Crane, like in that transitionary period. Like he started with Crane in the 1930s. It got halted because of the war. So he starts back with them kind of a little bit in the midst of the 1940s. And it was right before they had that real economic boom. So money is scarce. There really weren't that much materials and stuff. So he actually made one of his sinks, a couple prototypes for like the market to show off. I believe it was like paper and like plaster, I want to say. And it was a model? It was a model. So it wasn't like actual like porcelain or like really sturdy materials. And it was that. And I believe he did it for like a fraction of the cost. And I was just, like, kind of in awe because I was, like, this really shows, like, he didn't really care about the money. He didn't care about, like, all the hearsay. And I'll say about, like, oh, my God, Dreyfus is making this really crappy scene with these materials. Like, he really wanted to make this new innovative design and try to better the company. Wait, so the sink was going to be used with plaster and paper? Was the... It was a model, but it's, like, kind of like a showroom. So I know he had a test audience to come see. So it's kind of, like... A little mini buyers thing. It's like, okay, I want this thing, but it's like you don't really realize that this thing is not made of like tangible materials. Like it's fragile. But he, there's no surviving pictures, I believe. But like he made it look so good that people are just in awe, and it's like come to find out, like it's not even a real sink. <laughs> so where was he showing stuff like that? Was he just going to like state fairs and? home shows? I mean, what did? how did you put your products out like that? Well, Travis worked with everybody, so he kind of worked within the buildings of his, like, clients. And I remember for Crane, he worked literally in the factory, like, the bottom half of the factory, helping him. But he had um, his own offices in California and, I believe, in New York. So... Oh, so he had a place to show. He had his place. So Travis was, like, the name. I feel like during that period. But he was very flexible. He traveled all over the place to help his clients. And so you said he died in 1970 and... 1972. 1972. And was it just of old age? It's kind of romantic and tragic at the same time. Tragic in the sense that him and his wife committed suicide in their car by monoxide poisoning. But kind of romantic in the fact it was because his wife was dying of cancer and he didn't want her to like die alone. So it's kind of like this suicide pact and they died together. Uh, what? <laughs> we did not learn about that. Well, they don't tell you that, but like, I don't know, it's kind of sweet in a way. It's kind of horrific, but I mean, like, he was pretty much working up to his very last days. So I'm pretty sure had, you know, this, what happened with his wife, he would have probably somewhere science. Yeah, so his projects were ongoing. He never uh, retired. He never retired. Like, he worked hard. Wow, that's crazy. Well, it shows. I mean, we still use the same thermostat looking. I know. A lot of his designs still exist. Probably not in the same way because our standards of design are different, but there's evidence of his designs everywhere. And is there anything that you can think of off the top of your head, maybe besides the thermostat, that you've noticed just like walking around you're like oh that's from a Dreyfus 
design. Really? It's actually just been sinks. Like, which sounds really <laughs> weird. Like, I'll go in a bathroom and I'll, it's really kind of creepy and bad, but I will stare at a sink and check it just to see it just like stylistically if it's like similar. Like, there's actually a bathroom. I want to say the fifth floor in the cubicle. <laughs> <laughs> the sink. It's American standard, I believe. But the design is very similar to one of Dreyfus's. So they may not have credit to him, but I feel like Dreyfus had a hand, especially since Crane became a unit of American standard. Yeah, they probably just kept his drawing. I know. I didn't want to give him any credit, but it's okay. <laughs> it shows his design and impact last time. We're giving him the credit now. <laughs> now. Years later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like 40 years after his death. I know. Oh, well. He'll be, well, he's famous anyways without Yeah, because there's a lot of other stuff we can study. Yeah. Like, from him, but, like, kind of like a tidbit. Just a small portion of what he did. I know. I kind of wish they had more study on Crane and, like, his sink designs, because there's many more. But maybe there might be me. I'm yeah. not sure. I wonder where they are. I wonder if American Standard holds on to most of those collections and we're just not aware, or if it's private collectors, or, like, maybe still in his family. I wonder, too, because the ones that the Cooper Hewitt have are donated from the Dreyfus, um, oh. like, firm, and all his people, <laughs> they donated to him, and I have so many documents. I have to actually seen a sale document of that specific sink that I did, my catalog entry, given to the Cooper Hewitt. That's so cool. And I had to dig deep. One of my professors gave it to me, actually. I cannot think of her name to save the life of me, but she taught my drawings to architecture class, and her name skips my brain. But she, her signature is on the cell document, like the Dreyfus crane sink. Oh, that's cool. I know. I was like, this is awesome. They didn't have a price on it, but I mean... Just the fact that it's, like, an example of his legacy is just probably minuscule compared to, like, the bigger scheme of things. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for coming on and enlightening us on the post <laughs> I hope I enlighten. I hope I didn't make myself sound silly. No, definitely not. Thank you so much for coming on. And I'll post a link so you can go check out the object of the day. Um, you'll be able to see the picture. And then um, the Cooper Hewitt does a really good job of um, showing similar, like, images. And you can click on the time frame, and then see more of Henry Dreyfus's stuff, like, because his name's linked, yes, so you can have a... so much. Yeah, you'll have a better understanding of what we're talking about when you go to the link, but um, thanks so much for coming on, Sylvia. Thank you.